Good morning, saints, and happy Father's Day. I had the Father's Day treat of singing next to my own son, and he pointed out to me a few moments ago that I now say father with an American accent. So I don't know what's going on there. Let's get into the text, shall we, everyone? We're looking at the promises of God in this series, and I think we all know that one of the problems with promises is that we're used to them being broken, aren't we? There's an old English law case called Carlyle and Carbolic Smokeball Company. And the Smokeball Company, they made a 19th century device that you set on fire, stuffed in your face, and breathed in. And it was supposed to cure all manner of ailments. Of course, it made most of them worse. And so Mr. Carlyle sued the Carbolic Smokeball Company. And he said, you guys broke your promise. The judge looked at all the evidence and said, well, of course they did. You didn't believe these promises, did you? It was an advertisement. Ad men, he said, trade in smoke. And uh, it is possible the entire judgment was centred around his schoolboy need to make that particular pun. But all the judge did was expose something that we all know to be very true indeed. You can never, ever believe a promise. So, if that's really true, why do we keep making them? Why do we keep hoping that they will be kept, even when they're crazy promises? Why do we hope that they will be kept? And why are we so outraged and hurt when a promise is broken? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. And as we do, once again, we see that we are made in the image of a promise-making God. The reason why we want all these promises is because we've been wired to want these promises, and he alone keeps them. So, Exodus chapter 3, short version. God appears to Moses in the burning bush, verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. It's on fire, but it's not consumed. It's getting his attention, as it is designed to do. And verse 5, God said, do not come near. Take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, hitherto, this was just ordinary ground, but immediately it becomes holy because God is there. It is an instant temple, if you like, an instant tabernacle. A place to meet with God is immediately transformed because God is there. The bush is not important. God is. And in verse 6, God speaks, and he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. Now, this is significant for several reasons. Firstly, God starts the conversation. Moses doesn't go looking for him. God finds him. Secondly, God identifies himself before he says anything else. And in the ancient Near East, whenever a promise was made, a covenant promise was made, the initiator would state their name first. If the initiator was a king or someone of great importance, they would state who they are and who they've been from and what they've done at the beginning of the promise. So this is a promise that is being made right here. And then thirdly, the name, I am. Sounds a bit weird in English, but it's very significant Sometimes I think because just saying I am the name of God in the middle of an English sentence is difficult to understand. Our Bible translators often replace that with the word Lord, all in capital letters, L-O-R-D. You'll see that often in Scripture. And that is just shorthand 
but the, the Hebrew name of God himself. And his name, I am, means existence. God is. It's simply just the verb to be, but it's personified in the first person. I am is God. God is, I am. God is the one who is. Without God, nothing would be an is. If he were not be, we would not be. God is. And yet, God is also approachable. God is a person. He communicates who he is and what he does. He's not just a, a power or a thing, but approaches us as a person. And in giving his name at the beginning of this promise, he's actually putting his reputation on the line here, saying this to Moses, look, if I do not keep my promise, then maybe I don't exist. Or maybe I do exist, but you cannot know me. You might as well forget me if I forget my word. And Hebrews 6.13 says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. He initiates, and he identifies, and he swears, and then last of all, he repeats the promise. Last week, brilliant sermon. Get the tape if you missed it. There's no tapes, of course, I'm showing my age. Get the whatever it is on your phone. Nothing exists anymore. That's a different subject. Last week, we heard God make this amazing promise to Abraham. And he said in this promise, I will bless you. And I will establish you in this promised land. And I will give to you children. I'll give you an abundance of children. Your children will have children. And even though Abraham is old and his wife is past childbearing age, God makes this wild promise to him. An uncountable number of offsprings. And one offspring, singular in particular, will descend from you who will bless the whole world. And it's the same offspring as the one that was promised to Eve in week one of this series. The same offspring, singular, who will one day crush the serpent's head. And so this little statement here from God saying, I am the God of your father Abraham is significant because he's reminding Moses of all of those promises so far. In fact, every single time you see the name of God in scripture, L-O-R-D, capital letters, it is designed to remind you of all of the promises of God. It is shorthand code, a summary for the Old Testament, all of it. And uh, it is a recap of all of his promises. And it looks forward to the fulfillment of all of his promises as well. As we've heard many times in this series, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that, that God will fulfill all of his promises in Jesus Christ. Scoop them all up and tie them all up into this one offspring, singular, who will defeat sin fully and properly and reign fully and properly and rescue and deliver and restore. And every single one of these promises in the old covenant is wrapped up in Christ Jesus. And this is weird because at this stage of the Bible, we don't know about Jesus. We don't really know very much about Jesus at all. And actually, even when it comes to the immediate situation and the immediate fulfillment of this promise, things do not look very good, do they? It looks at this point in Moses' life as though Yahweh, I am the Lord, has broken every single one of his promises. And you can forget about the ultimate ones because he can't even do the comparatively simple ones right here. Our sermon series just truncates these huge passages of, of history. But the time elapsed between the promise to Abraham and this promise to Moses is hundreds of years. And instead of getting better... The situation that they're in has gotten worse. 
I am even admits it in verse 7. Look at this. Like normally, when a politician goofs something up and breaks a promise, they'll do anything to change the subject. Yahweh starts a conversation about his broken promise. Verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people, not a blessing, who are in Egypt, not the promised land, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Taskmaster is a very powerful and potent word. Hebrew words have many meanings, as you know. You get a Hebrew dictionary, there's just a list of meanings for every single word. But the meaning that stands out the most to me from this word taskmaster is for a person whose job it was to, to punish an animal to make it work harder, to beat and whip and goad a beast of burden to make it work harder. And this stands out to me because as we saw in week one, People are not animals. They're made in the image of God. And as we saw in week two, these people in particular are not just generally made in the image of God, like all people, but specifically identified with God as his children. Above all others, these people are special to God, and he calls them my people in verse 7. So here we have a promise. It's initiated It is identified, it is repeated many times, it is sworn by his own existence, apparently breached in numerous ways, and now amplified. Here he goes again, verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this is just a wild promise that got wilder. I am going to do this. Just give up. You know, why not? This is crazy. Egypt is a, is a superpower. Pharaoh is a god with a little g. Moses, by the way, is a murderer on the run from, of all places, Egypt. This is a crazy promise from God that I'm going to do something for you here. It, it, it sounds like another stupid piece of advertising smoke, like the carbolic smoke ball, doesn't it? Come off it. You know, you don't believe this stuff, do you? But it's very, very clever. The promise is actually tailor-made in a very clever way to Moses' profession. When it says, I will take you to a land flowing with milk, that word flowing means oozing. And it is the word used to describe the condition of the udders of a sheep or goat when they are so full that they have to leak in order to stop themselves from exploding. This is what I love about languages, right? Even though Hebrew has numerous meanings for all sorts of words that are confusing. It has a specific word for exploding sheep udders. I love <laughs> Hebrew. What, one, one, it's funny. But two, uh, what does Moses do for a living? He milks sheep. That's his job. His job is to make milk for someone else. And this is a promise of abundance using the chief metaphor of his trade. And God is saying that this land flowing with wealth and abundance is not just for some other bloke. It is for you. I'm going to make you rich, says God. Now, if the marketing department of the Carbolic Smokeball Company had called up Mr. Carlyle after he got sick and said, hey, would you like to buy another smokeball? I think the judge might have changed his judgment and said, look, guys, this time you've gone too far. This is ridiculous. These promises are absurd. You have to stop. 
but Yahweh doesn't stop. There's loads more promises to come from him. And next, I am the Lord God, says the words we've all been waiting for in verse 10. I will. I will is the language of a promise, an explicit promise is made here. I am says I will. And then I am says something awful. Send you to Pharaoh. Now in chapter 2, we read the reason why Moses fled is because Pharaoh was trying to kill him. And now I am says, why don't you go and see him? Go and approach the one you're actually running away from. And at this point, I can only picture Moses as Boromir from the Lord of the Rings, filled with fear and saying, one does not simply just walk into Luxor. You know, there's even, actually, uh, permit me the aside, there's biblical evidence that Moses spoke with a Yorkshire accent like the actor Sean Bean. Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says, I am not eloquent, I am slow of speech. And uh, scholars have debated for years precisely what kind of speech impediment this might have been. Clearly, we've resolved it today, it was a Yorkshire accent. The great eye is ever watchful. You know, you can't ever hear it again, can you? I am going to get letters. All the Yorkshire people are going to be upset with me for mocking the accent. All the biblical scholars will be upset with me for making stuff up. So we're going to go back to the text now. A promise. The words, I will, an apparent breach of the promise. You've got affliction, cry, taskmaster, oppression. These aren't the words of God's critics. These are God's own words about the situation of his own people. And then you have a doubling down by the promise maker, putting his own reputation on the line and and saying, listen, let's just forget all this I am business, forget knowing me, forget existence itself if I'm not good to my word. And then involving an ordinary person in the task of fulfilling the promise. Talk about risk. And not just an ordinary person, a really bad one like Eve, like Abraham, like all of us, Moses is wholly unsuitable for public ministry. Wholly unsuitable to be part of God's fulfillment of this promise. And Moses says in verse 11, he knows it. He knows that Yahweh's confused. He says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Come on, speak silly. What are you sending me for? Who am I? Uh, Alan Cole, great scholar, uh, said, Who am I is not an existential question, but an expression of sheer disbelief. Moses has learned to distrust himself in the wilderness. The problem is that Moses, he's been on his own too long. He's, He's started to focus on himself too much. He's become obsessed with his own weakness and his own sin. And and so he started, as a result, to distrust God. His real beef is not with the promises of God in an abstract sense. It's in God's ability to involve him in the fulfillment of it. It's his personal unworthiness that he sees primarily as the barrier to God fulfilling his word. My sin, he reasons, my inadequacies, my fear, my Boromir stuff must be bigger than God's capacity to use me in any particular way. So I'd better just give up and and stick with the sheep and the goats, he says to himself. 
That's his thought process. It's not unusual. It's very fallen. It's very human, this way of thinking. Now, I imagine that we've all thought like this at some point. I'm sure we have. God can't love me, not after what I have done. All of us have, have probably had something like this. Or, or maybe God can love me, but I'm just going to watch. He can forgive me, but then he just brings me up to neutral. He certainly could not deploy me in any meaningful way to fulfill any of his work and purposes. If I get involved, I'll only mess it up, so I'd better just watch. Uh, God, however, is staking his reputation and putting it on the line in involving Moses in this moment. God is a God of promises. And so he makes another one, amplifies the promise, doubles down on the promise again, and he says this, I will be with you. Now, this is how God can be so certain that Moses won't just cludge this up. This isn't Moses going into Egypt. It's God. It's the temple. It's I am. It's the presence of God going into that dark place of oppression. And God makes the very same promise to every one of us. If you are in darkness, if you're desperate, if you're oppressed, if you're trapped in your sin or a cycle of addiction and aware of that and you feel shame, God is coming for you. You don't need a pastor, you need God. And you need to know, actually, we're looking back at this stuff. God has stepped into your situation already in the person of Christ Jesus himself. God has dwelled with us with Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus. God has paid the price of our sins in Christ Jesus fully, taken them away, and now he is enthroned. And he rules and he reigns and he is with you. And if he has already brought you up and out of your sin, guess what he wants to do with you next? If you've turned to him and you've received forgiveness and you've experienced healing, he has a job for you to do. Guess where he is sending you next? When you go, you will never be alone. He will deliver. He does it. That is a promise from God. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you are a God of promises, and sometimes in the great arc of history, it looks as though you've broken your word, but you've not. You fulfilled your word numerous times right then and there, and then in that ultimate way in Christ Jesus. And Lord God, we hear you make that same promise to us. And so, Father, help us as we respond, as we stand and we, we say the creed, as we come to gather around your table. Please, God, Make that same promise to us, and would we accept it in the name of Jesus? Amen.